Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charbuk Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. My guests today are Josiah Neele of the R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. And they together are the hosts of a very amazing podcast. I had the pleasure of being on that podcast. It is the Urbane Cowboys podcast. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. All right. So today's discussion is going to be the American political scene and the culture wars that have uh, engulfed America. And as they say, what happens in America does not stay in America because it kind of percolates everywhere across the world. So just to give you guys an example, if you remember, there were school shootings in America two, three years ago. I mean, this particular one, I think, was the one in Florida, guys. So we had people in South Bombay, outside Gateway of India, holding up signs, uh, talking about... Uh, <laughs> say no to gun violence and just to let you know in india it's very hard to own a gun but we still so just <laughs> so just to give you guys a perspective so what so you know the, the usual saying is what happens in vegas stays in vegas but i i can assure you what happens in america does not stay in america it kind of affects the whole world so josiah let me start with you so as we stand right now so so first i'll request you to tell a bit about yourself and we're going to divide this into two parts. So I'm going to start with you and let's talk about American politics as of now. So where do you think is the American political spectrum roaming around? I mean, uh, how's Trump doing right now? So uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, so I am from uh, Texas. Actually, both of us are from Texas, which is uh, there's a lot of parts of America that people in other countries don't have. Uh, very clear views, you know, it's like Ohio or Iowa, Texas. My impression is people in other countries, they, they kind of know what that's about. Uh, I, so I used to be an attorney. I practiced law for a while. And then I started getting more involved in uh, policy and political issues. Uh, so now I work for uh, the R street, which is a kind of a, a think tank. I do a lot of work on energy stuff, but also other stuff as well. And uh, I've always been uh, fa fairly uh, conservative, uh, both socially and economically. Um, and that, that continues to be true. So in terms of your question about the political environment right now, in America, I think this is true in other places, in some other places, but in America, this is really an age of political fracture uh, where sometimes it seems that um, people on the right hate other people on the right almost as much as they hate the left and vice versa. Same with the left, where there are people on the left who, you know, the biggest enemy is other people on the left. Uh, and we, so you've definitely seen that. There, there's definitely been a fracture among uh, the Republicans and conservatives between people who are more populist and Trump friendly as opposed to kind of older school uh, conservatives or Republicans uh, who don't necessarily like uh, certainly this Trump's style, but also some of the uh, trade restrictionism, immigration, you know, there's, there's some things that Trump is really big on that uh, a lot of people who would consider themselves right or center, not, not so much a fan of. And that, and so, but at the same time, there's also people who really, really love Trump, right? Uh, including folks who were not involved with Republican politics or the party process before. And overall, uh, you know, if you survey Republicans, Trump is not very popular in the country as a whole, but he's very, he, he has a lot of support among Republicans, even compared to prior Republican presidents. So that's, that's kind of the situation. We can talk a little bit more about that, but I want to give Doug a chance to get in here too. Yeah, so Doug, so obviously I'm going to come back to you guys about the politics, but also can you give uh, everybody who's going to be listening to this podcast an idea about the culture war? So uh, uh, let me tell you where I'm coming from. So uh, this is an average Indian's Twitter timeline, right? So we, we, we see some very weird images these days. We see people uh, holding other people and they're walking like dogs on the streets in America. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm really trying to be as serious as I can. That's and just it really Portland. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was one side. And then we see uh, massive protests. And, and 
and uh, somebody like me so you know in, it's in the midst of covid and everybody obviously around the world including my country i mean you guys did not have the kind of lockdowns we had i mean we had a lockdown lockdown like you can't get out of the house that that's how bad we had it so then we look at america and then there is this culture war right now in america where i some for someone who's let's say sitting in india they kind of get confused like okay you're in a lockdown but you're protesting so when you're protesting on the streets the <laughs> lockdown is fine and then you're not protesting but but if you go out and you protest about i'm not going to wear a mask or i i i or let's say i have the right to start my business you can't tell me to shut my business down that protest is not okay so can you explain what's going on in america and dog and before that please tell everybody a bit about yourself too Uh so I guess a little bit about myself. Um I'm one of the directors of Lone Star Policy Institute. We're a, a, a relatively new uh think tank in Texas. Um and um unlike Josiah, I didn't give up practicing law. I still do it. Um uh, so uh my day job is I'm a international and business attorney and I think it actually sort of brings a very different perspective because as we're talking about things like the culture war you know my my existence my you know my day-to-day activities i'm seeing people behaving rationally i'm seeing people actually get along and particularly in the business world we we come to the table to negotiate something with differences and we're striving to get something done and then you look at what's happening in the streets and what's happening in the media it's like that's that's a world apart from me um and you know and i live i live in a suburb outside of of houston and so uh which just for uh, for those who are aren't as familiar about Houston in particular it's actually been described as the most diverse city in America which i think surprises a lot of people and even in our uh suburb is very very diverse um what i see on tv and what i see on twitter is not the reality here at all um and one thing i'd point out too is you mentioned uh, the protests or demonstrations you know if you looked at the the George Floyd um protests that happened around the country some of which and we could you know we could get into how things transpired some of those actually became violent in some places but if you look at a place like Houston which is actually where George Floyd was from we had at one point 60,000 people in the streets as a demonstration and there is very little there's a little vandalism and such but it's a very different experience and you know we can talk about what we can talk about sort of what happens when you have 60,000 people in the streets during a pandemic which raises some questions but it was a very different experience here where it was you know it was it was a demonstration but it was also to a certain degree sort of a, a memorial for George Floyd because he was from here so you know the United States is the size of a continent and the type of things you see in Portland and places like that is not what you're going to expect to see in places even crazy places like Austin, Texas. <laughs> so so Josiah, here's uh let's start with uh, the the political landscape in America. Obviously, unlike uh, how we have things uh in India, in India we have the parliamentary system and uh, you know actually there we have too many political outfits and there are uh, each and every political outfit kind of uh, caters to a spe- special interest group whether it's based out of linguistic identity or religious identity or many other things like economic uh, policies there that there, there are socialist parties in india uh, uh, other than a capitalist party we have everything else in india which is which is ironical and, and people think uh, you know i mean uh, people think bjp is right wing and the little do they know that uh, there is no capitalist party in india political outfit so it, uh, now here's my question about the politics too so let's expand on this for a person looking at america from outside it gets very confusing because historically and 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 i'm going to use the canadian example here because in canada historically the most pro immigration group in, in in that sense has always been the harper you know conservative uh, political outfit it's actually people don't realize that about canada that the most vehement opposition to immigration has always been from the far left in canada especially when it comes to quebec and places like that but if you look at harper and the voting patterns in canada a lot of people have actually the immigrants have been voting for harper and the conservatives but in america it has never been the case uh, let's take the indian uh, indian diaspora in america for that example i know overwhelming 
thing. I think more than 85% of Indians actually vote uh, for the Democrats. And uh, now the Republican Party stand is very confusing. Even I'm not able to nail down what the Republican Party stand is per se when it comes to immigration. Like it, I remember the George Bush uh, administration was very pro-immigration in, in many ways. And now you have a sudden shift of policy, especially uh, with the latest episode, which uh, surrounds, I think there were two issues where one was the H-1B visas and the other was uh, students being told to go back. And I think there were a couple of years, I think there are three universities that are that are kind of suing the Trump administration or they've gone to court uh, with that uh, in that case. But here's my question. So for someone to understand American politics, what is the average uh, Republican Party view? Because since the advent of Trump, you seem uh, you seem to have this uh, this policy confusion where it's, things are all over the place. Like we don't like the old Republican Party was kind of predictable on many things, but with Trump coming in, so uh, has Trumpism? So my question to you is: Has Trumpism kind of overtaken conservatism? Yeah. So. There's a lot there, and obviously immigration as an issue has has changed a lot in terms of the, the politics of it. It used to be that the parties were more split on immigration. So you would have, there were definitely always a lot of Republicans who were skeptical of immigration, favoring uh, restrictions, that sort of thing. But there were also a lot of Republicans who were, you mentioned George W. Bush, who were more favorably disposed, and on the uh, on the left of center, uh, you had a lot of folks that were were more skeptical. Union folks, Bernie Sanders actually traditionally was uh, pretty skeptical of immigration, and and that's kind of shifted for various reasons. Um, you know, I think uh, you you kind of like o- over time uh, political cult, you know. Political coalitions change and the issues that are important to people change. I think, you know, um, there is a general sense that um, the so-called, that globalization has had a lot more negative consequences than people would have expected or thought maybe a couple decades ago. And I think that may explain some of what's going on with the appeal of Trump. You you do have to remember, there have always been Trump-like figures uh, on the right within the Republican Party. Back in the 90s, there was a guy, Pat Buchanan, who he ran for president a couple times. uh, Kate, you know, uh, challenged the first George Bush presidency for the nomination. Uh, Didn't didn't win. But if you look at his... What he was talking about, it's it's pretty much all out of the Trump playbook in terms of, you know, China, trade, immigration. These are all harmful to America. Uh, he was definitely uh, a right winger, but he wasn't so he wasn't so much of a small government guy. So that that has always been there. But now, uh, over the last decade or so, that's kind of been supercharged. Right. And you see this, I think, not only in the United States, but in a lot of other countries, too, where you have similar sorts of movements of people who say, uh, I'm, you know, that, that they're conservative, but in, instead of prioritizing things like taxes, they prioritize global trade or immigration issues. Yeah, I would, I would say I think we're going to have a lot more clarity about uh, what the Republican Party stands for and what sort of conservatives uh, believe sort of in a, a, a broader spectrum because being conservative and Republican isn't necessarily the same thing, never has been, but particularly at this moment. But I think we're going to have a lot more clarity after the election because, uh, you know, there is a lot of, it's, it's kind of interesting to go back to 2016 and think about why Trump was elected and what different people, why they were motivated um, to vote for Trump. And one, there, you know, two very obvious ones was people, particularly on the you know right of center and even moderates, were voting against Hillary Clinton in a way that we're not going to have the same dynamic with Joe Biden. 
I've got complaints about Joe Biden, but the sort of visceral feelings that a lot of conservatives had about Hillary Clinton, it's just, it's not the same situation at all. Um, but also um, at the time we had, uh, we just had um, a Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia who had just died and left a vacancy uh, that was basically became a reason for a lot of Trump skeptics to vote for Trump with a sort of promise of we can maintain a, um, a majority on the Supreme Court. So there was a lot of, you might say, a little bit more, dare I say, slightly more intellectual conservatives that held their nose and voted for Trump um, with the promise that we could at least maintain the, the Supreme Court. But a lot of those things just aren't at play this time around. And so when we talk about, you know, has the Republican Party, have conservatives uh, changed their view on immigration, globalization, and all this sort of thing, it's complicated because, I mean, I think we're going to get some clarity come November. On one hand, it's like, where's, where's the Republican Party going? But also, I think the the mix of who's a Republican now has very much changed because there's a lot of people that were very clearly Republicans um, four years ago that now don't feel at home in the Republican Party because of the way that Trump has changed it, potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that coming out of, I think the way those people view the Republican Party in 2021 is really going to depend on whether Trump's reelected. If Trump loses, then I think there might be a lot of, let's just you know mention somebody like a William Crystal at the Bulwark. He'd be somebody that would likely come running back to the Republican Party and trying to shape the future of it. If Trump wins, you know, you may see people with sort of that, you know, they're a little bit more, I guess what the conservatives now might say, or nationalists, whatever they call themselves, rhinos, Republicans in name only, that would actually run off to, to the Democratic Party. So I think we're going to get a lot more clarity uh, after November. See, that's a very interesting point. So actually, I, I have a follow-up for, for you on that, Doug. So so are you, uh, so so nativism is on the rise, let's say, in America. It, uh, so that, that would be the natural coral, uh, you know, correlation for that, right? So if there are people who are now changing their inherent nature, because uh, like I said, so the George Bush Republican was someone who was, uh, who was like, hey, you know, come in here. If you're scared, please come to America. We are a capitalist society. We don't care what colors, race, religion, whatever you are, just come in, work. We don't like taxes. We just want freedom. We want freedom to have our guns. We, we want freedom to uh, say what we want to say. We don't like the government telling us what we're supposed to do in our life. And that sounds like a plan. Actually, if you ask me, that, that's, that sounds pretty good. But now you have this very interesting uh, shift where you have nativism on the rise in India, uh, in, in, in the world, even in India, I would say it's the same scenario, but it definitely is on the rise in America. So then, uh, Doug, in that case, wouldn't a, a, a significant chunk of the criticism of the left of Trump, where they say he gives air to these nativistic arguments, actually legitimized? Yeah. Uh, and I, Well, again, I think that I think that we're going to get some clarity come November. And the reason I say that is there's, there's, there's definitely a legitimate critique about Trump on, on uh, sort of playing footsie with nativists and, and so forth. I'm not going to say that Donald Trump is a white supremacist, but there's certainly a, is more comfortable with, uh, you know, certain groups that are more nationalistic, more nativistic than, than I would be. But I think that we're, if I were to predict sort of the, the battleground for this election, I would say, look to America's suburbs. We know that in rural areas, that's going to be a Republican and a, and a Trump stronghold. We know that in urban areas, it's going to be, that's going to be a progressive area and it's going to uh, vote for, for Biden. The, the battleground I think is going to be in suburban areas and the interesting thing there was even in a red state like Texas in 2018 in the, the midterm elections, um, uh, Ted Cruz um, nearly lost the, Repub the, the, the Senate seat out of Texas to uh, Beto O'Rourke. And he actually where he struggled was in suburbs, traditionally Republican suburbs. And I think that this is, you know, this doesn't mean that Trump can't win. But I think that if you look at the suburbs, his views are, I think there was a lot of people in the suburbs that co coming into, say, February 2020 would say, we don't like his antics. We don't like his tweets. 
but the economy is good. You know, GDP is up, 401k looks good. Um, and so we're just kind of, if we just don't follow him on Twitter, life's actually okay. Um, but now that you have the pandemic, I think that a lot of that rationale has gone away. The economy is suffering. He hasn't handled the pan pandemic well. And so if you look at people in the suburbs, they're going to be, they're mostly, I mean, these are the people I live around. They're not really that political. They, they care about quality of life issues. And I don't think that they're, you know, for instance, I think in 2016, there was definitely, Trump was able to, you know, go around saying he was going to build a wall. It was a very much a, he had a immigration push, right? It was going to be an anti, he was going to restrict immigration. Uh, he didn't build the wall. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that say immigration is what's on anybody's mind right now. Everybody's what's on people's mind is they, they want, they want a vaccine. They want to get back to, back to their jobs, back to their life. And at the end of the day, Trump doesn't really have a, a narrative. He doesn't have a track record that says, I'm here to make your life better, more certain, predictable. I don't think that Joe Biden necessarily does, but I think he knows how to convey it better than Trump does. Um, I see. I see Josiah smirking. What do you think, Josiah? Uh, well, I, I so I have um, I have said in the past that I think the the best strategy for Biden to win is to uh, do no campaigning and only only appear in public uh, often enough to reassure people that he's not dead from the coronavirus. Um, you just hold up the day's paper and and say a couple words that. You know, the, because it's not it's not the election is not really going to be about Biden. It's going to be about Trump pro or con um, and also, you know, whatever tr Trump versus uh, the virus or Trump versus the protests or Trump, ver you know, whatever other crises happen in the next five months, because it's been a roller coaster of a year. Yeah, so so this is a very important point you raised. So there is something different from, let's say, from the, the Trump, the first term of the Donald Trump, the first election, then the second election. But let me draw what was common in both the elections. So as we were talking about on, offline, too, that, you know, I remember very clearly just before the elections and uh, uh, the first uh, elections. And I remember everybody's like, look at the polls. Hillary Clinton is going to wallop Trump. Hillary Clinton is willing, uh, winning. Like, I think there was like 99% of the polls, including the day the election counting was happening. And I still remember the videos where, you know, they, there was this thing where in the morning they had such a nice smile on their face on CNN and MSNBC and all those news channels in America. And then as the day progressed, their faces kept on changing, faces kept on changing. And I can never get that image out of my mind of Ben Shapiro doing a live stream, laughing his ass off. And he was basically in short saying, what the hell is happening in our country? Donald Trump is going to be our president and he could not control himself. And he was laughing incessantly on a live stream. And, and I remember everybody and every single poll saying that Trump's going to lose, but he won. Now, the same thing's happening right now. If you look at the polls right now, so I, I did go on Real Clear Politics and, and I tried to look at the aggregate numbers of different polls. And it's quite clear that Trump has, uh, his numbers have gone down in COVID. So, uh, so let's start with you, Josiah, now. So do you think COVID by itself is going to be such a huge factor? Like, I, I, I also get it, what Doug said, that, you know, I don't get Trump, to be very honest, as an outsider. So when they started, he was wearing a mask. Then suddenly he stopped wearing a mask. Now again, he's wearing a mask. So the, the signaling, like I'll give you an example. So when it comes to India, now people can criticize Narendra Modi a lot, but when it came to his handling of COVID, the way Modi came on, on TV, the way Modi addressed the nation, it actually used to calm the nation down every time Modi would come and speak to us, right? And, and he gave us the feeling of uh, like that senior statesman or the elder in the house who, who comes and says, okay, guys, I have it under control. Don't worry about it. But obviously, the American zeitgeist is not like the Indian zeitgeist. We we are culturally different societies. Like uh, America is very individualistic where, oh, you're not going to tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? In America, it has that streak. So obviously, Trump was not going to do that. But do you think this is going to hurt Trump a lot? His constant flip-flops and his gaffes where... I, 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 I could not control my laughter. I know he was not really saying that uh, you're supposed to inject those things in your body, those chemicals. But the point is, it, 
it does sound hilarious when he does, you know, make these gaffes on TV. Yeah, so I, I think there's there's two things. One is if you look uh, over the over the the world, all the different countries, and also this is true historically, but most leaders have seen their popularity rise in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Even even places uh, and leaders where objectively speaking, you'd have to say they handled the situation pretty badly, right? A lot of people have died. There's something uh, in times of crisis, people like to rally around a, a leader. And if someone can show empathy and, uh, you know, a sense of being in charge of, and taking the, the, the situation seriously, uh, they, they tend to go up in the polls, right? Uh, that did not happen with Trump. He did not, if you look at the first few months of the COVID thing, he did not get any bump the way that the other leaders did. At the same time, he didn't go down any either. It just didn't, it was kind of weird. It didn't seem to affect anything. Now he does see, it does seem to be uh, hurting him. It's not entirely clear to me how much of it is COVID versus how much of it is his response to the protests, because uh, that's another thing that's that's going on, uh, a big thing that's related. Um, but the in January, if you had asked me in January, uh, I think I probably would have said Trump was likely to win because the economy was going great, and you could have said in 2016 Trump was kind of an unknown quantity. Now you could say, well, you know, he's been president; nothing really bad has happened. Now, between the pandemic, the economic situation, which is really bad, the civil unrest, and uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, there could be like a, an alien invasion or something, right? Who knows what's going to happen in the next five months? Uh, it's, really, it's, it's really hard to, to say or predict what's, what's going to happen, but uh, the election is, is totally changed, right? Everything, all, all the old indicators that you would use to see how things are going, I think you kind of got to like start from scratch because it's a very, it's a very different world that we're living in now. Yeah, I actually totally agree with that. I think that I think I was telling people in February that Trump was going to was going to win. I really did believe it. I don't believe that now. Um, and short of a phenomenal gaffe from Biden, which he's capable of. Um, I don't think that Biden's going to lose. I mean, the thing about Uncle Joe is he is a gaffe machine, but they're usually pretty darn funny. I don't think that Biden is going to do the same type of thing that Hillary Clinton did when she said that, you know, Trump supporters were a basket of deplorables. And so then every conservative rushes out and gets a coffee mug and a t-shirt that says they're a proud deplorable. And I think that that was really unifying. And I just don't see that here. I mean, I just, you know, Biden's, Biden's got a lot of issues, but he's smarter than that. Um, sort of a low threshold, but he's smarter than that. I don't think he's going to make that type of mistake. Um, and I, I just, for instance, there's been a couple of different reporters that have sort of thrown a softball to Trump saying, you know, why should we reelect you? What's your agenda for the for your second term? And I think the most recent one was Chris Wallace. And Trump's response was, well, I was treated very badly in the first term. Like, that's not actually, you know, a reason to vote for you in the second term. And so I don't think he's making any case at all. And even with like, a, you know, even if he re reboots the campaign and he has a new campaign manager like he did in 2016, I just don't think he can get them. I don't think that there is a message that's going to resonate that's going to get people to look past the mishandling of the epidemic, the mishandling of the government restrictions. And and it, it just ultimately what just, just I was talking about, the lack of empathy. I mean, it's it, I just don't think that people are going to you know have any confidence that, you know, that if we say we think that we can get get our hands around this virus and the, you know, at the early part of 2021, I think most people would look at that and say, I'd have more confidence that a, you know, a seasoned politician like Joe Biden is going to surround himself with adults that are going to go actually do 
do something to, to solve the problem. Maybe we don't like everything he's going to do, but he's going to have a plan versus Donald Trump that just seems completely adrift. All right. So what about this side of things? So I'm just going to use Joe Rogan as an analogy. I'm not saying he has any kind of political influence or not. So Doug, so the, let's start with you here. So Rogan has been quite clear on his podcast. And I mean, we cannot deny the fact that Rogan's podcast is the biggest in the world. I mean, I mean, Rogan's so powerful. So many Indians listen to Joe Rogan for that matter. Yeah, he's huge in India. It's like a lot of Indians listen to Rogan too. And, you know, so what would be... Joe Rogan's not a right of center guy. He's on the left. Rogan's been pretty clear about it. And when a guy like uh, uh, Joe Rogan goes like, he's not sane. He can't even frame a sentence. And he keeps on harping about it on his podcast. So do you think... That the this disenchantment that you talked about that people have with uh, Trump, don't you think there is an even uh, more uh, significant disenchantment that people have with Biden and his basic inability to even frame a sentence? Uh, and they're like, "Are we going to have this guy as the president?" So I might as well not go and vote. So. Uh- I, I think I recall Joe Rogan as being on a TV show where you ate really weird foods or something. I've never actually listened to his podcast, so I don't I don't know what Joe Rogan's. Yeah, you know, I do know that he's got a really big Spotify contract, but um, you know, there's something to that to a degree. Um, you know, I've I've kind of joked around about Joe Biden that the best thing about Joe Biden is that he was a, that he's now a doddering old fool because he's always been a doddering young fool. Um, and, or younger, he's, he's quite, he's actually quite a bit older than Trump, I believe. But, um, the fact that he's sort of empathetic and he's at least portrays himself as empathetic and that there's sort of this expectation that he's been around government enough that he's just going to surround himself with people and, and probably listen to them. And if he, you know, if he he can't really articulate a clear message, maybe, you know, for, I will say this as somebody who's right of center, if I think that that Joe Biden is going to be low energy, incoherent, make gaffes all the time, um, and and really have a hard time passing a legislative agenda, that is that is amazing from my point of view. If that's what you know, if that's the risk of the choices between, uh, you know, let's say Joe Biden versus a very organized, very uh, you know ambitious Elizabeth Warren. I would much rather have somebody that I think is a little bit more of a, you know, stammering old fool. That's much more appealing to me. Fair enough. So now let's get into the second part of our discussion, which is the culture wars. So Josiah, let's start with you here. Now, I'm not able to understand what's happening in America. And this is my conclusion. So correct me if I'm wrong. So I've had this discussion with a few other folks in America. Um, So this is my understanding of the American culture. So you had the 60s hippie movement and you had the social changes that happened in America. You had the civil rights movement. And then from that comes a lot of things. And then maybe in the early 2000s, there was the rise of neo-atheism and there was a significant attack before that from many years on the, you know, the American uh, essence and the american essence was always they had this you know grand narrative of american exceptionalism and the protestant work ethic and stuff like that and in comes this hard line secular ideology and uh, it clubs with neo atheism in a very weird way and you've kind of smashed the edifice of old school protestant ethic in in that way and when I look at uh, what is loosely nowadays called the social justice warriors in, in, in America, uh, I see a new kind of religion coming up in America. It's actually very similar in many ways to the old religion where it's just the original sin has changed, where the original sin in the case of Christianity maybe was something else. And here the original sin seems to be privilege. It's kind of, uh, that's your original sin. And uh, The weird thing is that in this new religion, there is no redemption. Like in Christianity, you can redeem yourself, right? Right. You you still have uh, the option of redeeming yourself. But here you just don't redeem yourself. In the words of Robin DiAngelo, no matter what, if you're white, you're always wrong. And uh, it's, it's kind of very interesting to me. And in such a scenario, how are you guys still not confident 
when the cultural zeitgeist where it's on your tv screens it's on your social media streams it's i don't know how big whatsapp is in america but like in, in india if, if these kinds of things come on whatsapp too and that has really downstream you know percolations but i guess in america twitter is enough a lot of people are on twitter but how can such a huge cultural change where like i mean i i mean a guy like mcwater who's a pretty i don't see mcwater to be right of center i mean i'm sure you you've heard john mcwater is a, a linguist yeah yes yes yeah so and then there's matt taibi and then there are many other people uh, uh, who you know who have been speaking up about this uh, till the extent that even sam harris had to do a whole uh, monologue on his podcast where he was talking about you know crime so let's take the subject of uh, you know gun violence you know gun violence or let's say racism in america for that example and uh, there was this uh, i forget the name of the harvard professor so who had come up with the research where when it came to actual violent crimes when uh, when we you know check for all the variables is actually what comes out is that actually more white people end up being killed by cops than uh, than african americans and yes why the roland fryer yeah so so thanks a lot so i i'm very bad with names so i did remember reading about it so and uh, and in the same research obviously it was categorically stated that cops do tend to uh, have you know mishandle african americans far more for petty crimes uh, like let's say if you're having a you know bag of weed on you or something of that sort the probabilities of the cops roughing you up and being harsher on you and uh, tend to be more in those cases so for lighter crimes there seems to be a bias but 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 my my question to you is that if if the entire cultural zeitgeist is going to go where it doesn't matter if you're white you're canceled and your privilege is a sin that has no redemption why would joe biden still win then yeah so this is an interesting disconnect in our politics that the public discourse and the political battle lines seem to be drawn as you say between this kind of uh woke position that emphasizes issues of uh race and to some extent uh, gender as well and very critical uh, has some very strident views which traditionally would have been pretty marginal and yet the democratic nominee is a 78 year old white guy who you know is it not only is he not woke but he doesn't even know what the word woke means right he in fact he he released a one of his campaign videos a while uh, a week or two ago he released it and he said have you heard this term woked you know so he didn't he didn't he's he's out of it right but that's like the most reassuring thing about him exactly right so this i think this is you ask you know if these battle lines are drawn one thing that i think protects biden is that it's it's very difficult for uh republic for trump or republicans or conservatives to tie biden to all this woke radical stuff because you just look at the guy and you listen to him talk and it's very clear that like that's not who he is it's not where he's coming from um it 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 would be like uh if the left were to try to accuse Donald Trump of being a religious fundamentalist right you know he's a fundamentalist christian you know he's going to uh it just it doesn't it doesn't stick um So I I actually think in that respect it makes the political discussion a little weird regarding the election but it's probably to the advantage of the Democrats that they have a candidate like that who is not is harder to associate with the more radical elements that they might turn the voters off. So so dog here's my query then. So Okay so on one side we're saying basically Joe Biden is uh, Uncle Joe kind of out of sorts Uncle Joe who doesn't know uh, what's going to come out of his mouth uh, in the first place so then but why can't the republicans actually send a message out 
to to the base and maybe the independent voters who who have not yet decided that listen this guy is out of sorts anyway so i don't think so he's going to be running the presidency so who's going to be running the presidency is very important who's going to be doing the policy is it going to be the squad and uh, obviously you know the folks for the folks who don't know the squad is uh, this lady from new york and then there is rashida taleb and there is ilhan omar and then i forget the fourth one but basically the uh, and uh, they're they're there and then there is nancy pelosi playing poker on the side some days she likes the squad and then the other days she's uh, you know putting the squad down and I mean, I have to say she's a wily old uh, politician. She knows how to play politics. I have to give it to her as someone who follows politics very passionately. So she's smart that way. But the point is then, shouldn't the Republicans be saying, look, Sleepy Joe, as uh, Trump likes to call him, what a, it's, it's a hilarious name, I have to say, but uh, Trump calls him Sleepy Joe. So Sleepy Joe is not going to be the president. He's just going to be the president as like a, a rubber stamp president. And these are the people who are going to be actually pushing your policy. So why aren't the Republicans doing that? So there's a few problems with that. Uh, first off, uh, pointing to uh, Biden's potential intellectual disabilities is probably not a, a smart play for Trump. Um, and then if you think about, uh, you know, the idea of, well, you, you have to really think about the people that the president would be surrounding himself with. Uh, well, that, that's not going to be a strong suit for, for Trump either. Uh, I'm currently reading John Bolton's book, and, and it's hilarious because he's giving all these insights about what a, what chaos there was in the White House. And of course, he's it's part of the reason it's so funny is he's casting aspersions at everyone else and like you're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, but, but the idea that, well, we really need to know who Biden's going to surround himself with. Well, we don't know. You know who's going to be in the current White House? You know a month from now. I normally I could probably name the the, the most of the people in the cabinet. At this point, I've given up. I barely know who's in the cabinet I anymore. But I would also, you know, at the at the risk of being glib, I would also say this: that despite all this talk about the the culture war, and I'm not saying that it's not real. Some of what's going on is the fact that, A, we're in a, an election year, so people are trying to make things more divisive and more contentious. We're also all in isolation, so we have nothing better to do than to sit around on Twitter and amplify all this. But I also think that the moment that Joe Biden is sworn in, it's going to be all rainbows and ponies for everybody. It's going to be a new day, and suddenly systemic racism is all going away because we've we have elected – uh, Barack Obama's vice president. And sure, there's still going to be a lot, you know, you know, th this is their mission, whether they're in a think tank, whether they're an activist, they're still going to be concerned about all these, these same issues. And I grant them that. But in terms of the, the dominant culture, I think the conversation is going to change dramatically, sort of in that honeymoon period, if Joe Biden is actually elected, we're going to be looking to him as sort of a mini messiah that he's going to bring a new day for us all. If I could just add something to that, which is Joe Biden has not announced yet who his running mate is going to be, who the vice president is mm -hmm. going to be. That should be coming soon. I suspect that once that happens, particularly depending on who that person is, he said it's going to be a woman yeah. likely to be a person of color uh, in one respect or another. I suspect that there will be a concerted effort to try to argue that this person is going to be the real president, right? She's going to be the one who's really in control. And depending on who he picks, uh, the, the vice presidential candidate may be someone who is easier to tie into some of the, the more radical stop so perhaps perhaps they're holding their fire for for that reason yeah and, and just to add to that um i did see that nikki haley had had essentially tried to play this game uh where, where she basically was saying you know the the real that no matter who um biden picks as a running man whoever's in the cabinet that the person who's going to really be directing policy is elizabeth warren so they're already sort of trying to play this game at least at least nikki haley as a proxy for trump is trying to play this game well, that, that's interesting. So now let us leave the elections and the politics aside. Now just let us look at American culture uh, on a whole. And this question is for both of you. And I'm going to start with Josiah, right? So Josiah, do you think 
a certain section in American society, I'm not saying in the American society at large, but uh, do you think there is a crisis of meaning there? I, I think somewhere down the line, uh, and it's funny coming from me because I'm a godless guy myself. Yeah. I, I, it's it's actually very weird. Every time you know I talk to religious people and they'd be like, are you sure this question is something that you really mean because you yourself are very materialistic in your own ways. But I have always been one of those and, and, and I'll explain where I'm coming from. I have never been someone who believed to throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you know what I'm trying to say. And somewhere... Uh, I think a huge chunk of American life, they have kind of thrown the entire edifice of religion. And now they're like, you know, I hate it when the new atheists uh, or anti-theistic people tell me that, oh, meaning is so simple to get in life. You can get meaning in music. You can get a meaning out of football. I was like, are you trying to say religious people don't enjoy music and football? Are you that <laughs> silly? Yeah, I was like, what are you trying to say? I think that that's not a good argument. So do you think America is having a crisis of meaning in some ways? And this is for both of you. So Josiah, you can go go first and then Doug can come in. Um, so that's definitely plausible in the United States traditionally has been kind of weird in that for a rich, developed, advanced, technologically advanced country, we were still pretty religious, right? So whereas if you look at Europe or Japan, most developed parts of the world, church attendance was fairly low. In the United States, we tended to be much more religious. And over the course of the last decade or two, that's really fallen off, particularly among the young. And so I, I think that that is an important insight that perhaps people are trying to to replace the meaning that they would have gotten from religion with something else, whether that's uh, woke stuff or, you know, political activism, uh, so on and so forth. I don't think that's the, I, I, I am not convinced that's the biggest uh, or strongest factor um, just because for various reasons, but there's, you know, you mentioned that uh, earlier, you kind of said that wokeism was kind of like uh, religion, but without redemption, you know, while there, while there are some definite similarities between the kind of woke ideology and religion, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have any of the consolations of religion. Uh, so, and it seems to have come on, uh, really rather quickly in a way. It's, it's kind of, I guess that does happen with religious revivals too, but I don't know. So I, I definitely think, um, you know, a, a large part of what's going on now is kind of an attack on civic meaning. So you look at like tearing down the statues or projects that attack the, the national narrative, national myth identity. Um, so, that if it really is a crisis of meaning that's probably a worrisome sign because you end up destroying more meaning and you know who knows what could emerge from that cauldron there yeah it's, it's a difficult question and I, I i think that my views on it are probably pretty similar to josiah's i do think that people are 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 misdirecting a, uh, you know, a, a hunger for some type of meaning and, um, you know, being part of something and trying to find that in politics. Um, and I think that's always a mistake. Um, but I also think that there's an element of, of we've, we actually have, and, and, and you, can, you can put too fine a point on this, but I think that we've, we have done so much to improve the quality of life in America. This is even, it's, it was true before the pandemic, but I think it's even more true while we're sitting around literally with nothing to do, uh, that we're sort of bored and we're looking for something to be angry about, something to give us meaning, something to be against. And, you know, when, even when, when, even when the economy is, is up and employment is up and wages are on the rise, that's you want to have something that that 
get you motivated. And, you know, it's not like I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. So we had an enemy. We had somebody that, you know, like we could all rally around America because we had somebody that was sort of this force of evil. And there's not really that type of situation anymore, although I think there's an opportunity there for the for the taking if somebody would uh, uh, be bold enough when it comes to China, they probably could make the same case, uh, particularly when it comes to the treatment of Uyghurs and such. Um, but there's, there's not that unifying sense of identity of we're all Americans, we believe in freedom against those people out there that believe in just the opposite of us. There's not that, and I just think that we've we're sort of looking for meaning and too many of us are looking for meaning in the wrong places, which is politics. Yeah, that, that, that I totally agree with you. And you know, this is, uh, this is going to be my last question before we wrap things up because I'm conscious of your time. Um, the one thing that has always, uh, you know, attracted me about the United States of America. And this is why I always say, while I love my, you know, my time in Canada and I have very fond memories of there, but I always say one thing to all my friends in India, whenever they ask me, why do you think America is the greatest country today in the world? And I say, because that's the only country in the world where people actually have freedom of expression in the real sense. I mean, uh, ask a guy who lives in India, I can rat out laws after laws where Believe me, like uh, as, as a good friend of mine and who comes on mainstream media in India a lot, you know, Dr. Anand Ranganathan, he says the only reason I'm not in jail right now in India and he's an atheist is because the Indian state has decided that, you know, he should not be in jail right now because there are laws in India, like, you know, there is a blasphemy law. There, and, and the funny part is India is majority Hindu and Hinduism does not even have a concept of blasphemy. Like, we don't even have it in our religion, and we still have a blasphemy law in this uh, for say, uh, you know in this country. I mean uh, that's for another day. But what worries me is when I read op-eds, you know, in 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 pretty decent magazines and mainstream outlets, where you know slowly but surely, it, like the recent letter about cancel culture, and even Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I know somebody will say, "Oh, who is she? She's just a senator or whatever. She's from New York, and she's from just one section of New York where she hardly is representative of America." But what worries me is that there is a voice now in America that actually says maybe free speech, and that includes hate speech because American Supreme Court judgments have been very clear that even hate speech is free speech. It's not like I like hate speech. But the point is, that's the price you pay. And that's what I loved about America. And I would always tell my friends, look, that's what we should aim for. Brandenburg versus Ohio State. That's the standard we should go for. And that is being challenged, Josiah. Uh, uh, should we be worried about that uh, if we were looking at it from outside? Is is there a threat to free speech in America? Uh, well, I'm, I am worried about it. It does seem... So from a strictly legal perspective... Uh, free speech is probably about as protected as it ever has been. So if you were, you don't need to be worried about armed officials coming to your house and taking you away because you said something critical of the president or you said something that was politically incorrect, um, which is not the case in many other parts of the world. However, culturally, uh, there does seem to be a bit of a chill that has fallen on free speech where there are an increasing number of topics or pos positions or viewpoints that are considered unacceptable. And if you, if you, it's a, if you, say the wrong opinion or even use the wrong phrasing, uh, you can be, you can lose your job or be ostracized. And so th there's been a, a bit of a narrowing. And in addition, uh, not only has there been a narrowing, but it's also important that some of the unacceptable opinions, in my opinion, are perfectly reasonable. So that that's even worse. You know, it's one thing if you're restricting uh, you know, you're culturally restricting speech and it's all bad. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's in this case, it's not all bad. So and the. So the, there is a. Uh, uh, 
there's a there's a woman, uh, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, who is the inspiration for the a big project in the New York Times called the 1619 Project, which is all about trying to redefine the uh, foundation of America as being based on racism or whatever. And she tweeted something recently about how she thought it was funny that people would claim that things like the New York Times or universities or whatever were woke because they, they didn't live up to her standards of what she would like to see, right? So there's already, I think, uh, a bit of a problem with free speech. And what worries me is there are a lot of people who would like to see it go even farther, right? And they might get their way. <laughs> uh, so, which, you know, worries me both for self-interested and civic-minded reasons, because, you know, the thing about, one of the things that I like about capitalism and democracy and our, the common law legal system is they're all based on, uh, they're adversarial systems, right? They're based on competition, whether it's ideas or businesses or whatever. They don't, you don't just assume that you've got the right answer. You assume that people come to the right answer by having one person say something and then someone else contradicts them and you kind of try and sift the, the arguments pro and con. And when you lose that, you lose an enormous amount of human potential and the potential for progress and advancement. Um, and I don't want to lose that. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with Josiah on the legal side of things. And I think the, the concern is much more in the cultural space as well as in the corporate space of how corporations are responding to, uh, you know, outside influences, activists and so forth. Um, but, you know, I don't think that that's a lost cause. I, I, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this at all. Uh, I'm not even an NBA fan. But for instance, I know there was a there's a big issue when uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets dared to say something in favor of um, Hong Kong democracy in Hong Kong. And it sounded like half the NBA came jumping down his throat about, you know, well, we don't really know what's going on in, in China and Hong Kong. And so basically there's sort of now this uniform approach of the NBA is all standing together, uh, you know, sort of nobody can say a word in favor of Hong Kong democracy. And the allegation is, is because there's too much Chinese um, money at stake for the NBA. That type of thing is definitely worrisome. Uh, but in terms of the legalities of being able to speak, you certainly have the ability to speak. And, and even in the case of like that corporate situation, uh, again, I'm not an NBA fan, but if I were an NBA fan, I think I would have just immediately stopped being an NBA fan because of that. Right. So you have the ability to say, you know what, this behavior is completely out of line. I'm not spending another dollar with the NBA. I'm not spending another dollar with Nike or whoever else advertises with the NBA. And that's not a perfect, uh, perfect way to respond to things, but at least it's a way. And so to the extent that it's outside government, uh, you know, outside of like government censorship, there are ways to push back. And, you know, if you see speech, even by speech by the NBA, individuals can speak up and say, no, I, you know, if you're going to tell me, I can't say, you know, uh, support uh, democracy in Hong Kong. I'm going to say support democracy in Hong Kong even louder, and I'm not going to buy your product. So we we still have all of those means in our society, and so in that sense, I, I think that as long as people are willing to, you know, use their speech rights, um, you know, is if the minute that you actually feel cowed, that you feel like you can't speak up, you're already sort of conceding defeat. But when somebody says something outlandish and you actually respond, you don't have to, you don't have to do what I think that Donald Trump and some other people on the right go too far. And they want to say something even more shocking because they want to get your attention and they want to they want to they want to own the libs, so to speak. 
you don't have to do that. But if you simply respond and say what what you just said is, you know, is irresponsible, it's wrong, you're supporting a dictatorship, whatever the case may be. But you actually voice your opinion and you do it boldly. You don't even have to be angry about it. But if you just keep exercising your own speech, I think that's one way to push back at any of the forces that are trying to, you know, to rein in free speech. Yeah, I kind of hear you. And and it's very interesting because I think, uh, and, you know, we can we can wrap things up now, but, but I just wanted to uh, get your opinion on this, Doug, that, uh, so what do you make of the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, right? So isn't that also in a way a challenge of free speech where he kneeled down on the national anthem, uh, uh, him kneeling down and then he doesn't get picked up? I mean, so, you know, I, I do hear in a lot of Republican or conservative circles, oh, no, no, he's not a good quarterback. Look at his averages, you know, in the la- after the first year and a half. Uh, other than that, his average was going down. That's the real case why he's not being selected. But don't you think that must be some tiny little angle that, okay, you know, a lot of conservatives and Republican supporters or in general are huge followers of NFL and they don't want to see people kneeling down or stuff like that. So isn't that also a case of the same uh, same thing? And then you have LeBron James who just refuses to make a you know he doesn't speak a word on China. As if LeBron James, uh, somebody went on. I remember his reaction was like, "What China? There's something called China. I don't know what China is." And and to me, it's actually don't you think it's the same thing playing in both cases, Doug? Oh, I, honestly, I don't know because I. I uh, Colin Kaepernick actually did seem to like he was already kind of past his prime. I think that already the, uh, you know, uh, so I, you know, I don't want to get into the, you know, what, where he stands as a quarterback. Uh, but, the, you know, but you certainly can say his, he, he wasn't, uh, from what I saw of it, it wasn't, he wasn't as, uh, as sharp of a quarterback as he was in earlier days, but also undeniably he was going to bring drama to a clubhouse and in the sense of if somebody if tom brady wants to say something highly confrontational and bring a lot of drama you put up with it because you're going to win but if somebody is going to be even an average quarterback you're not going to put up with a lot of drama and i think that on the flip side you know we could talk about tim tebow who actually you know got as far as i think winning an actual playoff game and so forth which caught kaepernick previously had had done more than that. I think he played in a Super Bowl. But you know, Tim Tebow, you know, takes a team to the playoffs and and is out of the NFL too. And you know, I guess a, a, a you know, a conservative could say, well, there was because of uh, you know, him preying on the field so much, there was, you know, uh, discrimination against Tim Tebow. We're all entitled to our opinions. I I don't know how to rate Colin Kaepernick. Uh, there certainly would have been a ton of drama. And and again, it's it, to the extent that this is sort of the marketplace and people say, I don't want to watch that product because he's doing something offensive to me. Uh, that's, that's all part of it. You know, that's they're they're free to have that reaction. Probably if they really are an NFL fan, if, if they're going to be offended by that, it's probably smarter just to fast forward and not watch that part of the game. But uh, that's all, you know, that's not, I don't have as much concern about that because that's not the government telling me, you know, you have to stand up for the flag or you, you know, are setting a rule. People have a, the people have their own remedy. They have their own remedy of like, I'm going to watch this game in support of Colin Kaepernick. I'm going to turn off the game because I'm offended by Colin Kaepernick. And to me, as long as we have the freedom and have a remedy to, to make our own choices, then I think the situation is manageable. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes as a sports lover and, you know, somebody who enjoys sport and, Actually, nowadays I'm obsessed with mixed martial arts and uh, that's all I watch. I just watch UFC all the time. And I just hope sometimes the sportsmen just talked about sport. I know it's very weird, but (laughs) just don't talk about politics, man. I just liked you when you were just a sports star. Just just let me have my, uh, in a way, to to, to use woke language. That was like a safe space, right? Right, (laughs) right. It doesn't matter which political ideology you belong to, and you just go and you enjoy the sport, and 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 you get out of there. And I don't know. I just think politics sullies everything, and I wish uh, that that sport and politics would not have mixed. But you know, uh, I think we are in the way. You know, we live in in a way. We live in the age of uh, hyper information, and uh, I don't know. I mean, social media has just, in a way, has just made us crazy. Where we just want to have an opinion on everything. I just wish we could go back to those days where, you know, somebody would come and ask me that, hey, what's your view on this? And I'd say, 
I actually don't know, <laughs> and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so guys, once again, you know, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I, I, I really enjoy your podcast for at least for someone who's the you know living in India, and uh, I, I, I like American politics. I, I think the and I always maintain this. I, I and uh, you know there is this chauvinistic side in even in Indian politics, but I, I, at least I don't think. I think America is a great country and. It's a it's an ideal uh, in ideal in many ways, and I think we can learn as India can learn a lot from America. I'm sure America can learn a couple of things from India too. But yeah, you guys are doing great work, and once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, guys. So if you want to know more about the Urban Cowboys, please check the description of the podcast. I have you know kept the link of uh, their SoundCloud, Stitcher. You know, there there are there on all the audio platforms. So if you go and listen to them, you know you can go anywhere. If you're on Spotify, I'm sure you'll find them everywhere. And if you like what I'm doing over here, you know the drill: subscribe to the channel, like, share. And if you want to go to the next step, you can become a member of the YouTube membership program, or you can support support me on Patreon. You know, the link is patreon.com slash charvak. Until then, I'll see you next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye.